Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is a Monday because of the bank holiday. So I suppose we should use the start of this episode, uh, Michael, to say that there is a new podcast on Gripped. It is called The Week That Really Was, The Week That Really Is. I don't know, it's, it's one of those two things. Uh, it's John McGurk and David Quinn. I assume it's similar to this. I've only listened to portions of it when I was checking David's audio. <laughs> God, I can't imagine people not being able to get their audio right, Gary. In this day and age, I mean, these things tend to be pretty well idiot-proof. And yet, and yet... Life finds a way, Michael. You think? I know. Well, I'm delighted to see that the young people are getting a chance, you know, to roll out their ideas. And I think we need to listen to them. I mean, not listen to them too seriously. But the young the young people need to have an opportunity to express their ideas. Yeah, so if you like this podcast, you might like that podcast as well. You can pick it up on Gripped, Spotify. I think it's on everything but iTunes at the minute. And you should give it a listen so that they succeed in their endeavour. Don't give them so many listens that they succeed too well in their endeavour. Because frankly, we need them to succeed well enough that it's good for Gripped and good enough for them. But so that they do worse than us. Because that's the sweet spot. Yeah, absolutely. I am reminded by those wonderful words of Gore Vidal, who once said, Every time one of my friends succeeds, a small part of me dies clearly words to live by and not the deranged ramblings of a monster. (laughs) A petty vindictive and poisonous toad. Uh, One other thing before we start the government has finally published the hate speech bill um, the general scheme of it. I'm going to put a link to it at the bottom of this podcast. We're not going to be talking about it um, this week because I haven't had enough time to actually go through it properly. I've just kind of skimmed it so we'll probably talk about that next week but we'll put a link to it below in case you want to have a look at it yourself I think people should have a read of it before we talk about it because listen you know us we like to be charitable we don't like to use harsh words but I will simply make the the observation that sometimes when it comes to definitions say specifically if people should have a look at the definition of gender if there were lawyers involved in drafting this and you got to imagine that there had to be somewhere along the line Gary these were not the I don't know these were not the shiniest stars in the academic firmament of that particular law class because some of the drafting of this seems to be well laggy at best you are coming from a very traditional, one-sided view of things like definitions. You probably <laughs> you probably believe things like a definition of a word should not refer to the word in its explanation of what the word means, because that would be circular. But that's old-fashioned. I know what you're saying. I accept that critique. I am coming from a tradition of, I suppose, what you'd say is Aristotelian syllogistic logic, then symbolic logic and Boolean stuff and all that. Principle of non-contradiction and all that nonsense. I have to recognize that there are other ways of knowing and those other ways of knowing maybe like in traditional or indigenous ways of knowing are equally valuable and equally important and I need to check my privilege to sort of try and battle with my whiteness and is it my whiteness I'm battling with there or is it something I don't know I'm battling with something anyway and uh, recognize that there are other ways of knowing so that my my critique may be simply a a reflexive defense of my own privilege and I, I want to own that and maybe we can do a self-critique session sometime about that but not tonight. To be honest I'm just happy that you managed to get through that entire thing without saying that anything was a manifestation of anything else. (laughs) We're part of a grand narrative. (laughs) 
Also, we're talking about being more popular than John McGurk and David Quinn's podcast, and the first thing you do is tell people they have fucking homework. Read the hate speech bill before you tune in next time. Is that your idea of what'll make us popular? Well, everybody likes homework, don't they? Oh, famously. Oh, yeah. It, 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 preparation and homework, because it makes the experience a better and richer one when you've done your homework. Yeah, Michael, maybe if this podcast was based in Switzerland, that might actually work. The Toblerone is a strangely pleasing geometric experience of chocolate. What? Where did that come from? What does that mean? Young, Young was Swiss, wasn't he? So we will, um, we will get to the opinion polls. Last week we were talking about the government, uh, particularly Fine Gael, complaining about libel laws and libel laws being used to basically attack TDs and stop them from talking about Sinn Féin. And th- I think the point we made, Michael, was that it's a bit weird to hear one of the parties in government whine about the law as if they don't realise that they're in control of the law. However, this seems to have just been the setup for Michal Martin to come out. Because I don't know if you heard him during the week, Michael, but he came out and begged people to stop objecting to housing. He said that the young people don't have time to wait. And you know what, Gary? The Irish people agree with them. There was a survey done. I don't know. Was it Ipsos or the Irish Times? Ipsos and the Irish Times did lots of surveys this week. Somebody did a survey anyway. And in it, 90% of people surveyed said they agreed that there should be a greater supply of housing, even if that expansion in supply meant a decline in house prices. Now, I suspect it meant a decline in house prices for other people's houses, but maybe not. I shouldn't be overly cynical. You know, maybe just is the, the deep and generous heart of the Irish nation. So it's the Irish people are behind him. He's in government. He's a Taoiseach. So, you know, what he could consider doing is changing the planning laws. I mean, I'm just throwing it out there, Gary. It's a, a strange and weird idea, I know, that you could actually change the law when you're in government to do something or to achieve an outcome that you liked. But it has been done in the past. I know in other countries, certainly, they have done it. So we could try it here. You never know. Here, I'll give you a couple of examples, which I know you actually weren't looking for at all. But I, I will anyway. There are local authorities in this country which for ex- are still insisting on what they call a like a local rule when it comes to getting planning permission local needs you're, yeah when you're talking about somebody applying for planning permission to build a house in a rural area or a small village or something and they will apply it that you have to be uh, employed or the locus of your economic activity has to be within say four miles or five miles of wherever it is that you're applying to build your house now the funny thing is Gary, best of my recollection, that kind of requirement was already judged to be illegal under European law. Yes, wasn't it something about it breaching the freedom of movement, which is considered a nearly the fundamental rule of the European uh, Union? Yeah, it, there was. I think there, there was a freedom of movement. I think there may have been issues around restraint of trade also. I know I, I can't quite see what that would be, but there was restraint of trade, freedom of movement. Generally, it was also, it's ar- it's an arbitrary. It's never a good thing in law, whether it's three miles, four miles, or five miles. It's also just a really bad idea, just in the practical sense that, as we know, increasingly, 
the numbers of people who are directly involved in agriculture, therefore mostly directly involved in economic activity in the countryside, is declining all the time. We're talking about a tiny fractions of percent in many areas now that are actually directly employed. So in, also, with the advent of the motor car, Gary, the motor car has meant that people can live many, many miles from where they live and still actually come and go. If you live five miles away in a motor car, that may even be a journey only of 10 or 15 minutes. Now, what this has effectively done is it's meant that a lot of people can no longer live. For example, they can't live with, they can't live near their families. So if they wanted to have a family, they want to have children, they are they're alienated from the kind of supports that they might normally expect from grandparents, neighbors that they know, uh, aunts, uncles, etc. The kind of infrastructure that exists and has existed for generations in, in rural areas, not just rural areas. It also means that instead of being able to take advantage of an acre land which is hived off the farm for them, they have to buy a smaller house on less land for more money in a town. You're also condemning to death small local communities by saying that no, you can't have more pe people who are from there can't actually live there anymore. So the schools will go, the shop will go, the pub will go, and eventually these places go. And maybe, maybe, Gary, that is the point of the exercise. Well, depending on who you're, you're talking to, like the Green Party happily say that they support these sort of things because they want people to move into the towns because that's less resource intensive and there's less need for cars. They basically want to move. Ireland's spread is actually quite similar to what you see in places like Switzerland. They want to move more towards a French system. Basically, if you ever go to a French village, everyone lives in the village and then goes out into the fields. You know. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, that would have been also true in Ireland back, I think, in sort of the, the high Middle Ages. You tend to have villages and then people go out and plough their strip of land. But on local needs, it's not just um, employment and different, uh, different places do this differently. Certain councils, I know this directly, will look not just for employment. They will look for the clubs you are a member of. They will look and see if you're a member of local churches. They will ask you to deliver letters from such Seriously? in order to get it. Yeah, it's not just employment. You need to show to them that you have a deep commitment to it. And a lot of these places, if you've ever bought a house before that is not in the location, will just refuse you for local needs because you are already based somewhere else. So you basically need to have grown up in the area, have left, rented, but never bought anything and then basically come back, talk to people you knew when you were a teenager, ask them to write you letters, and then that'll be enough for the council. But it's not just a simple, where do you work? In the face of a guy, that, that just seems to me like a mad intrusion into the lives of citizens by the state at a local level, which is just unjustifiable. It's ridiculous. And as I said, from the top, as we said at the top, it's just, it is already illegal, and yet it is still going on. So one thing Michal Martin could actually do is get onto the back, get onto the council, get onto the local planners and tell them, stop breaking the law. Second thing, for example, this thing where everybody and anybody can object you don't have to have status. You don't have it. I know of a case of a man who was doing involved in uh, a certain kind of development, some of which involved housing, some of which involved other commercial activities. And there was an objection lodged. And he went to try to find out where the objection came from and discovered it came from a man who lived around 200 miles away. They later 
having spent some time and some money, I think, chasing this up, discovered that every single time a certain kind of development was proposed anywhere in the state, this man objected. I don't know if it was out of a hobby or a pettiness, or if it was because he thought that ultimately this was these people doing this was going to impact on his grand imperial design to have his particular form of this commercial activity present in every one of the 26 counties of the country. I don't know. You know, that's something that we could look at. We could look at, I mean, we won't get into Antashka, Gary. We'll just say the word. Well, I was going to say he's probably a member of Antashka because otherwise he could be paying quite a lot of money for that amount of stuff. He may well be paying money, or he may indeed be a member of Antashka. I do not know. But one thing that they could look at very seriously are the laws around the statutory rights and, the, and privileges granted to that private club called Antashka. Statutory powers. Statutory yeah. In a republic. Oh, Jesus, don't, please don't. My blood pressure. But anyway... He is Taoiseach, he's the leader of the government. It seems to me, Gary, there are many tools at his disposal that he could use to actually aid the construction of houses. Do you know what else, Gary, he could do? And hold on to your horses here. He could look at the costs imposed by government on the cost of building a house and the regulations and the restrictions imposed on builders and developers on the type of houses and the type of developments that they build that stop houses being built. Other than the fact that the houses that they end up, the houses that they actually do build are far more expensive than they necessarily have to be. And that might actually lead to more houses being built for young people. And that is something, since these are government-made restrictions, they could be government-unmade. Or we just start throwing beans at people who object. You could do that. I suspect that will be less effective. Government ministers seem to think it's a very effective way of doing things. It tends to... <laughs> are you referring to Junior Minister Oshin Smith by any chance here, Gary? I, yes, I think that was one of the smoothest transitions we've ever done. Smooth as a diesel a diesel car, just 25 years old. Junior Minister Oshin Smith came out today, and well, not today, but uh, came out a couple of days ago, and he was talking about this recent spate of protesters throwing beans at paintings, generally quite nice paintings, like old master type of paintings, and then gluing themselves to the wall. We're not talking Jackson Pollock. We're talking about nice paintings here. Vermeer, Gary. Vermeer. I mean, God almighty. It'll be Velasquez next, although it won't be Velasquez. And I'll tell you why. Because Velasquez paintings are mostly in Spain. And I think the Spanish police will take a far more sensible approach to this kind of nonsense. You go into, oh, I don't know, where is it? Escorial, maybe, or the Prado? And you try and get your hands near Las Minas or something like that. They'll chop your hands off, and quite right, too. But yes, there was a Vermeer, there was a Van Gogh, uh, a Monet. Uh, I think, was there? Goya as well, I think. But nice paintings. Proper paintings, the kind of thing that you or I couldn't do, even if we had an extra special box of paints and colours. Has anyone tried this with the French yet? Oh. I don't think any of them were in France, because I feel if they were in France, those people would have been badly beaten. Well, it's funny you said, uh, you, you, this is also connected, you know, these protesters that are stopping traffic in the middle of the road in, in busy cities and gluing themselves to the road. <clears throat> the difference between the, the policing approach, and I'm, I'm not taking sides here, I'm just observing, because you know, I'm a big believer you know, that the, the, the police are the, the servants of the citizenry and they are not, or should not be some kind of powerful militia. But anyway, in Britain, police, the, the bobbies, are having nice conversations with these people and talking to them and saying, well, would you not consider moving on? Did you, did you see the video from France, Gary, where they glued their hands to the pavement? 
and the gendarmes came along and just got a good hold of the of the hand. Vroom, oh, up yes. she went. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, that probably wasn't pleasant. That was not pleasant. I am, uh, there are reports that since then, they've started to pretend to glue their hands to things rather than actually glue themselves to things because it was rather sore when the French decided to, the French police decided to take that particular approach. What is kind of concerning and utterly understandable is we have seen in Britain in the last couple of days, shall we say, the innocent bystanders are starting to take the situation into their own hands and are basically manhandling these people off the roads. Which is terrible. You know, the, there is actually a problem, though, here, Gary. If the police, if if there is a perception that the police are not actually doing what they're supposed to, and one of the things, you're, you're not supposed to block the, the King's Highway. Strange that's the King's Highway again, isn't it? Having for so long been the Queen's Highway. One of the things the police are supposed to do is make, is, is make sure that people can carry about their lawful business along the Queen's Highway. And they're not. And people, in one case, one man was on his way to pick up the kids from school and was really annoyed. And you can understand it because he's got small children who are going to be standing outside the school in God knows what area waiting for him to arrive. And he's not going to arrive because he's going to be late. And he got very agitated, started dragging people away. The likelihood at the moment is he is more likely to face legal sanction than the people sitting in the middle of the road. But there is a there appears, at least from what we see, from news reports, a growing level of frustration with the show is the innocent bystanders, the onlookers, with these people. And I think something nasty could well occur one of these days. And you don't want to see that. You don't want to see somebody getting into a situation where a car, shall we say, doesn't break quite soon enough when presented with somebody in the middle of the road. I mean, absolutely, Michael. That person's insurance would just skyrocket. It would be a tragedy. It would be unfortunate. But it is, anyway, reassuring to know that we have a minister in the government. What else kind of minister would you have, I suppose, except in the government, who thinks that throwing beans at art is, in a, what was the phrase, an effective thing to do? That begs the question, of course, Gary, effective for what? Well, his exact quote was, when I see people throwing tins of beans at paintings with glass on them or whatever, that's a really effective thing to do. It draws attention. Now, he did later come out and say that he wouldn't agree with anything that causes damage to the... Um, to the paintings. But then again, Michael, if you start telling people to glue themselves to paintings and throw beans at paintings and eventually a painting ended up, ends up being severely damaged, kind of hard to pick and choose what you get there. Yeah, it's like saying, you know, it's okay to juggle with things as long as you don't drop any of them and they break. I really want to see, and this is mostly because I think it will go so very poorly, someone try and do this in Spain, France, or Italy. Particularly Italy, actually, now I think about it. Actually, they did. Do you remember? There was somebody who was in the Uffizi Gallery, wasn't it? Was it? I think it was the Uffizi. It was somewhere in Italy. And they had done this. And the direct, this, this man, this little man comes out, he's, I don't know, he was director of the gallery or something about, and he was livid. And he grabbed them and he shook at them and he lectured them. You're a, you should be ashamed of yourselves. You're vandals. And bundled them out I mean, by himself, and I think to a round of applause. But no, it didn't. It did. It it, it was. Uh, it was a, a short, a short affair indeed. No, I, I don't. I don't think you're going to get away. What? Then again, you never know, Gary. You never know. We are so terribly civilized. But I wouldn't. If I was one, of, I wouldn't like to try it. I wouldn't like to go into the Sistine Chapel or into the Savaluji Francese or something like that and glue myself to the Caravaggios on the wall because I think that could end badly. <laughs> Can you imagine going into this in, into uh, uh, the 
the refectory uh, where the uh, you know the Last Supper is, and trying to get up to that, they would literally, I think, they would actually shoot you before you got near the wall. I think they would actually shoot you, which is a very bad thing. We shouldn't want that to happen. These polls, Michael. Um, have you got them in hand? Uh, I do. What are we looking like? You get to read the polls for once. I uh, know. Uh, we're talking about the Irish Times Ipsos opinion poll. Falling about at the first hurdle. Falling at the first hurdle. Am I? Uh, Fine Gael up four. Fine Fall up one. That hurt that poll or a different poll? That poll. But now you've ruined the surprise. <laughs> no, I ain't ruining the surprise. Which one? The one you were just talking about. The political poll, Michael. Okay. Oh, and... <laughs> what surprise? Presumably the people listening to this have had the opportunity to read the Irish Times, even if online. Well, if they hadn't, now they know what way Fine Gael has moved and now you're just fumbling the rest of it so they have to wait. Sinn Féin down one, Green Party up one, which which just goes to tell you that there is a hard core of people in Ireland who hate everyone else, but have so much money, they don't care how much it's going to cost them, as long as nobody else gets to go to Tuscany next year. Uh, Labour Party down one, and independence down, independence and others down four. So that means, Gary, that Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil added together is 43% and Sinn Féin is 35%. And 43% is more than 35%. I feel if I had done that, I would have given the uh, the actual percentages they were on as opposed to just the movement. But I think it's not bad for a first effort. You do like a good patronising, <laughs> don't you? You enjoy it. You like a good condescend. Thank you, Gary, for a first effort. Yes. Anyway, Fine Gael 22, 20, Fine Fáil 21. Uh, again, a mystery. What has Fine Gael done that would lead the public to say, let's give them four points more? I don't know. Fianna Fáil up one, Sinn Féin down one. But still, to be fair, Sinn Féin pretty well nailed on in and around 35 36%. That number looks... But is it really? Or is it friable? Is it fragile? As it gets closer... Who knows? Who knows, Harry? The, the thing to watch here is, as Sinn Féin are moving up, they're starting to move into overall majority territory, depending on how that vote broke down, constituency by constituency. If they fall just below that, and they find themselves in a situation where they're not the majority, and they don't have a working chance to go in with the independents, well then who are they going in with? Is it going to be Fianna Fáil? Is it going to be some of the alphabet left? It's getting harder, isn't it? Yeah, it's going to be pretty difficult. Also, because you'd expect Sinn Féin are going to cannibalise most of the rest of the left other than Labour. Are they going to want to go in with Labour? Assuming Labour have enough TTs to matter. Yeah. Mm. Labour at 3% is not looking like a whole lot of TDs going home to Kildare Street afterwards. You'd wonder how much of that 3% is going to be concentrated enough in constituencies where they actually have a chance to get elected. I mean, they'll take a seat in Wexford. They always do. They'll probably take a seat down there. Sure, is it Sherlock's seat down there? In that, in what is it? Fairness, the constituency of death. You have Michal McGrath, Michal Martin, Coveney, and Sherlock all in the same constituency. That is savagery. But yeah, I I don't see Labour. Also, do Labour want to go in with Sinn Féin? Really? I mean, they, you want to be in government. That why else be in politics unless you act, you you have a chance of getting in and getting your hands in the levers of power. But if you you're in Labour, I'll put it this way. How highly would you rate Sinn Féin's chances of actually being seen to do a good job and solve the problems that they said they were going to solve? I think a lot of that is going to come down to the situation they find themselves in. We have 
movements on corporate tax or corporation tax that could be a big problem for Ireland. Talks of different regimes that would make it uh, unviable to move cash into Ireland or to hold it somewhere rather than America. There is talk of recession. We've got interest rates going up at the same time as inflation. It could be like you could have two very bad years followed by some more very bad years. Well, just before I get to my question, I don't know if you happen to see Christian Lagarde was on the Late Late Show with Ryan Tuberley. I was nearly tempted to actually watch it. Uh, I didn't. I I, 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 I I caught it back afterwards. She said that inflation, Gary, had come out of nowhere. You know, had, no, nobody is expecting. Just come out of nowhere. The fact that we had expect that during COVID, when demand was strongly contracting, they expanded the money supply by a factor which hadn't been seen since the worst days of Diocletian. And nobody expected there would be inflation. Nobody said, we have a contracting economy, falling demand, but we're going to pump loads of money in and expand the money supply by something like mad stuff, like 20 30% over a couple of years. And nobody expected inflation. Well, if nobody expected inflation, Gary, I would really like to know who the hell is giving economic advice to Christian Lagarde and to the EU generally, because that's a bit of a worry. However, leaving that aside, as you know, Gary, one of the things that people in the polling business consistently say is when it comes to political outcomes, particularly a real bad result for a party that's been in power, one of the worst things you can do is not is not necessarily fail, because depending on the context and depending on how you've managed expectations, etc., Doing badly doesn't necessarily have to mean you get murdered at the polls because people are willing to see that there is nuance, that there are, that there is a context, that there is a moment, that there, we are at a particular point in a cycle or whatever. But they really punish people who over-promise. Over-promising leads, when you don't get the goods, leads to really bad reactions. And I would say, if I was a neighbour, I would look at, say, what Sinn Féin have been saying they're going to achieve. In housing, for example, cost of living, ah, it's, it's social welfare, health service. I mean, these these are not simple problems. Even if they had the right idea, Gary, these are not simple problems. They are really intractable problems. And uh, I see, I see a real big bunch of overpromising going on there. And what is also quite a volatile voter, who is at the moment fairly. St- fairly stably attached for the time being to Sinn Féin, but I wouldn't take that as a long-term promise. I think if over-promising, bad outcome, you could see a, a real proper shellacking. And why would Labour want to be attached to that? It was it was a curious contrast. I don't know if you saw, I, I can't imagine, well, maybe you did, but I only caught it by accident. It was an interview with Mervyn King, who was the former governor of the Bank of England, and he was being asked about inflation on a a show in a political show in the UK, and and he was very simple. He said, "Listen, we did this. Inflation was predicted. We all predicted there would be inflation, and now we have inflation. It was, of course, there's inflation. You have to throw into that guy as well the fact that they had developed 
this phobic attitude to the idea of deflation. They were absolutely obsessed with the notion that we were going to see what they call a deflationary spiral. Where and when this has happened, we don't know. But deflation had become this terrific bugbear. And they became so fixated on the idea that we were facing into deflation that they forgot that such a thing called inflation had ever happened, even though in the last hundred years, we've never had a problem with deflation, but we've had lots of problems with inflation. And they did exactly what inflation uh, had always been preceded by and then got surprised that it arrived on the door promptly. Not promptly, actually, because to be honest, people like myself and others had been saying, oh, the inflation is coming, the inflation is coming, and it didn't come. Well, it certainly didn't come quite when we thought it would, but we knew eventually, Gary, eventually the inflation would come. You're coming out of a period where there was, for an extended period of time, probably the cheapest financing humanity has ever experienced and businesses have ever had access to. As interest rates climb up and as inflation increases, It'll be interesting to see how many businesses are only viable because of that low cost, effectively a points, basically free supply of money. If it turns out that a significant amount of those businesses aren't viable, well, that will probably be a gloriously bad re- recession. Oh, I don't doubt it. I don't doubt that when when businesses who've, which have been ticking along in the back of borrowing at basically free uh, levels, interest rate, and suddenly have to start paying 1% more, 2% more, 3% more, 4% more as it goes along. It will become, oh, it, you could see a bloodbath in places. And that's what will happen. At the end, once you allow inflation into the system, ultimately, the only thing you can, the only thing you can do is strangle it with higher interest rates, which inevitably you're going to see a dampening in demand. And a dampening in demand is going to lead to a contraction across the board in economic activity, which means that businesses will go out and you will have a recession. But the problem is, Gary, there is no magic. There is no magic wand that we can wave to avoid that. This is to a degree. I mean, with this, what Schumpeter talked to you about creative destruction, that that the, and the Aust- in the Austrians, the business cycle alone, married to the idea of a business cycle, but this notion that recessions are required every so often to clear out that malinvestment, that misallocated capital. And that always happens. When money is free, when money is too cheap, your money will end up going places where it shouldn't have gone. Because when it's priced like that, it makes sense. But when it's priced correctly, it w- it doesn't make sense. People go make irrational decisions because they are made irrational by pr- because the price mechanism is suppressed. And I without going to this is yet another example of why it's so important not to fiddle around with the price signals. You can do everything else you want. You can have all the other kind of interventions that supports you like, but don't fuck around with the price signal because once you do that, nothing else makes sense. Yeah, I, I haven't, um, I've heard weirdly little analysis of this in the Irish press, but when you look at the international press, when you look at whether it's Reuters or a Bloomberg particularly, there seems to be a... a general consensus forming that rates are going to raise are going to keep going until they get inflation under control and that in order to do that there will be a recession that the fed on its own is going to be enough to drive a global recession and then the ecb is also going on its way no that Yes, okay, but that's not to say that they're going to generate a recession in order to strangle inflation a recession will be caused by those fact 
by the actions which are necessary to control inflation. It's not that a recession is desired or desirable, but it is the inevitable consequence usually of the kind of things you have to do in order to get inflation under control. I suppose this, this is probably something we're mentioning to, to listeners who may not be aware of it, that on the economics of this, no one wants a recession, but there is a sense of fear that if this is not gotten under control promptly, or if they try and hold off the recession in some way, you'll push it forward, but that you will make an inevitable recession worse. I mean, Italian inflation, Michael, in October was 12.8%. Germany was nearly 12%. Like, that is not sustainable. Like, that ends badly either way. See, once upon a time, there was the belief that you could have you could have inflation, but inflation you could you could handle inflation by growth and have higher level of growth, so the inflation you, you could mitigate it. But the problem is, we we discovered in the nineteen seventies was that it is actually possible, which theoretically the Keynesians believe didn't believe was possible to have such a thing as stagflation, in other words, stagnant levels of growth along with high levels of inflation. And that's what we're facing into, where we're going to have very low levels of growth, but high levels of inflation, which means you actually have what is, in relative terms, a decline in uh, the both quality of life and sort of, and in, 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 in incomes and in economies. So you have to avoid, you have to get, you have to, but you're talking about the lack of analysis, Gary. We have still... Now, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm missing it, but we had the great crash back in 2008-2009, was it right? 2009. Now, it was predicted at the time famously by Morgan Kelly. And when Morgan wrote that article in The Independent, he made the point, I think in the article predicted, or maybe it was an analysis afterwards, he made a simple point. He said, we did not have in Ireland an asset bubble. We had a credit bubble, and the credit bubble created an asset bubble, and the asset bubble, as bubbles always do, burst. And that created the financial crisis and the mass of the recession and the contraction in the economy and all the things that eventually led to the IMF coming in here and the ECB screwing us with uh, no affection or lubrication and it was all very very horrible but an essential part of what happened in Ireland was the fact that we were experiencing extended periods of very low interest rates at the same time as having very high levels of growth. But we had interest rates which were set for the euro because of the levels of economic activity happening in Germany principally, but also in France and other areas. And that interest rate was not compatible with our growth rate. Now, if we had an, we had our own central bank controlling our interest rates, then interest rates in Ireland would have increased. And they would have increased long before this. They would have gradually gone up to try and damp down an overheating economy. But we didn't have that choice. But we can't talk about that because that leads to the central question, is the euro a good thing for the Irish economy. Now, I'm not actually, I don't have a doctrinaire answer to that, yes or no, but it is absolutely obvious that there are very serious problems for a peripheral, a small peripheral open economy like Ireland's, when the interest rates are not being set to meet the needs of the Irish economy or match the current conditions of the of Irish economic growth, but rather the economic conditions of Germany, which is the single largest economic driver, of course, in the EU. And now that Britain has gone, that's even truer. And we tended to be more synced with the British economy than the German economy. So that's a that's a problem which hasn't gone away. But that's not discussed. It's, it's not fair to say nobody's talking about it. Cormac Lucy has talked about this quite a lot and written about this. 
and he wrote a book about it. So I think it was the, the, I can't remember the title now, but it's basically sort of the Ireland's escape option. But generally speaking, we don't want to talk about it because we're so terrified of having to address the issue of whether or not we should be in the euro at all or whether or not, in fact, we went into the euro at, really at the wrong rate. But that's a whole other kettle of fish. So I, I think the, the problem with the euro there is it has massive advantages, both to general consumers, to people going abroad, to businesses themselves. But you're right, there are clear, inbuilt, systematic flaws that cannot be resolved without fundamental changes to the EU and, and to Ireland. I think the problem there is I don't think anyone can actually say on a, whether or not it's a good or bad thing in a general sense, because the issues will only arise at certain times and you'll never know how badly those issues are going to actually hit you. So you're banking on the general positives being worse than the randomly um, spread about negatives, which can be awful, but you're expecting to only come up every now and then. It will also be interesting to see how the euro is, is hit by this if we have an end to cheap credit. It was a shit show. Let's put it that way. It was a shit show. And my, my only problem with we can we you can agree or disagree or analyze the nature of the shit show. But my central point is that we have not learned anything from that shit show. We are fundamentally in the same place. And the next time it happens we will be as surprised as we were the first time it happened. And on that uplifting message, I think we will uh, put us to bed for the week, Michael, to take your phrase. Very good. And we will be back next Sunday, all things being well. Mm -hmm. All the best.